1: Hello, everyone. This is Mireille Genot, and you're listening to the New Books in African Studies podcast. Joining me today is Professor Jean-Germain Crow, Professor of Political Science and Public Policy Administration at the University of Missouri-St. Louis in St. Louis, Missouri. He's the author of State Failure, Underdevelopment, and Foreign Intervention in Haiti, and the co-author of When Reality Contradicts Rhetoric, World Bank Lending Practices in Developing Countries in Historical, Theoretical, and Empirical Perspectives. Today we'll be discussing his new book, Healthcare Policy in Africa, Institutions and Politics from Colonialism to the Present, published by Roman and Littlefield. Professor Grohl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be with you today. Great. I wonder if you uh, would begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Well, I am a, uh, as you mentioned, a professor of uh, political science and, uh, Public Policy Administration at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, uh USA. I uh started as an assistant professor and uh, uh became a full professor in uh 2013. Uh I did my uh, graduate work at the University of California at Berkeley, uh political science. My uh areas of specialty were uh, African politics, comparative politics, and uh, public administration. I received a master's degree from the State University of New York at Binghamton, an MPA, master's in public administration. And uh, before that, a bachelor's degree also from uh, the State University of New York at Binghamton in uh, economics And, uh, sociology. I have, uh, visited or and worked in uh, about 15 African countries. Uh, I was born in the Caribbean, specifically in Haiti. So my work basically spans the, uh, the African world,
1: both diaspora and uh, continental. I really enjoyed reading this book and I really enjoyed the fact uh just the fact of this book because I think it uh it certainly um, contributes a significant uh amount to uh to the scholarship uh uh regarding um healthcare in Africa. So I'm really looking forward to um hearing um hearing you talk more about it. I wonder if we begin um with your introduction where you uh go through a review of the dominant schools of thought in public in policy studies and uh, and you explicate some key terms that recur throughout the book um among those uh healthcare policy um and um and, and public policy and i wonder if you could give us a working definition uh of healthcare policy
0: well as you as you mentioned basically in the book i st- I start by examining the uh, state of African studies in the last 30 years. And what I notice is that, uh, policy in Africa, uh, has tended to be neglected. In the 1980s, the emphasis in African studies was on structural adjustment, uh, economic reform, uh, which was understandable because at the 1980s are known in African studies as uh, Africa's last decade. And then at the beginning of the 1990s, you also, you had a transition from a focus on uh, economic reform to a focus on democratic reform, democratic transition. And then towards the end of the uh, 1990s and early 2000, the focus again shifted to conflicts, state failure, uh, uh particularly ethnic conflicts uh and, 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 and the Great Lakes. Uh so uh what I try to do in this uh chapter and in this book is to fill in the gap in African studies by focusing on policy, specifically healthcare policy. What what do I mean by uh, healthcare policy? Uh, well, healthcare policy refers to the actions or decisions undertaken by the authorities of a community, such as a country, regarding the health of its citizens. These decisions can either be active or passive. That is to say, non-decisions. However, I hasten to point out that uh, even though government tends to underwrite healthcare policy, uh, government actors are not the only actors in the making of healthcare policy. In developing countries in particular, numerous non-governmental organizations and private actors are also involved in the process, sometimes even supplanting or surpassing, uh, government. And so to take an example, in Rwanda, uh, cancer care uh, the largest provider of cancer care is basically Partners in Health, uh, which is located in a town called Butaro. Uh, uh, in addition, Partners in Health uh, trains Rwandan uh, cancer specialists. Before that, there were very before Partners in Health, there were very few cancer specialists in Rwanda. Now, this one organization. Uh, working closely with the government of Rwanda is training doctors in, in cancer treatment. So even though government tends to play an important role in healthcare policy, it is not the only actor. In developing countries, non-governmental organizations and private actors also play a key role in the making uh, as well as the implementation of uh, healthcare policy.
1: Right, and that's essentially the central uh, thesis of the book, which is that, that African healthcare policy does not take place uh, in a vacuum and, and many factors, including globalization and brain drain, affect, uh, affect policy.
0: Yes, you're quite correct. Uh, and so I focus uh, in chapter one on uh, both uh, uh, the, the theories that informed, you know, public policy as well as the factors more or less unique uh, to Africa, unique between quotation marks, that influence, uh, uh, you know, healthcare policy for good and bad. And one of these factors is, uh, you know, uh, globalization, uh, that is to say what I call the spread uh, of uh, information, uh, communication, and uh, transportation technology, and uh, the uh, brain drain that it is facilitating uh, uh, in Africa, which has negative consequences for 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 how uh, healthcare policy is implemented throughout the continent.
1: Yeah, and I would I would uh, encourage uh, listeners to uh, pay particular attention in that first chapter to an interesting um, challenge you make to the um, sort of. Current definitions of globalization, um, and and you choose instead to define globalization as, as technological in- innovation that makes possible the flow of capital, um, um, rather than uh, globalization as the spread of capitalism. I thought that was particularly uh, interesting uh, point and in frame uh, framing uh, this early chapter. Right. No, the, the key point here is that if you focus
0: on globalization as the rapid spread of uh, information, communication, and transportation technology, then you can see that it facilitates the spread of other things, mm-hmm. including, you know, ideas uh, regarding how you structure an economy, in other words, capitalism or democracy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, 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 so so, the substance of globalisation uh, is not the result, but rather the phenomenon itself, that is to say the spread Uh, Of of, of various kinds of technologies which facilitate the transcendence of other things such as the economy, the democracy uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, globalization for example uh, is playing an important role in African healthcare to the extent that uh, in in some African hospitals such as again Partners in Health. Uh, hospital in Butao, Rwanda, surgeries being performed in Rwanda can now be observed by uh, doctors at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, surgery, uh, which we used to think of as a very intimate medical intervention now has jumped borders Mm -hmm. because of globalization. That is to say, because of communication. Uh, and and uh, technology. Uh, and, and we have a number of instances, uh, and a number of other examples like this, where, again, technology is driving how we think about healthcare, how we frame healthcare issues. So uh, things such as total quality management, uh, managed care. Uh, in other words, the very language, the very idioms that African healthcare policymakers makers Use now to talk about healthcare in Africa. Uh, essentially, are driven by technology, <laughs> and so in Ghana, uh, there is an emphasis on on having uh, uh, you know electronic medical files okay, <laughs> as a way of reducing costs and managing the Ghanaian healthcare system back better. You see? There is also an emphasis on providing. Uh, uh, information about uh, different kinds of providers, so that Ghanaian patients can make informed decisions. Again, this is being driven by information technology.
1: Well, and I'll definitely ask you to, to come back to the uh, the Ghanaian example uh, later on in our discussion because it's a it's a very um, rich example um, and provides insight into uh, a lot of the. Um, a lot of the things taken up in in the book. So um, I wonder though uh, if we could if we if we moved on to uh, your second chapter, which uh, discusses healthcare policy in colonial Africa, uh, specifically from 1870 to 1960. Um, and the one of the things that I thought uh, uh, was interesting about this this part of the book uh, is that you make a point to suggest that the historiography of healthcare policy in Africa should begin uh, not with the uh, late 19th century Berlin conference but rather with the exploration period that immediately precedes it uh, so I wonder if you would say why you think um, why you think that why you think that's so the this accounting uh, for healthcare policy should begin um, then and also uh, what what you mean by um, healthcare policy in this period being uh, quote limited in scope and coverage okay.
0: Well good question. Uh well uh, I I would even like to preface uh before I answer your question my comment by observing that even before the exploration period uh in the early eighteen in the eighteen seventies, Africa had healthcare policy. <laughs> uh this is very important. I don't mean to suggest that before you know uh the uh presence of Europeans in Africa there was uh, no healthcare system, and there were no healthcare policies. And uh, again, if I may use the case that I know uh, more about, if, uh, Ghana and, and colonial Ghana and uh, Ashanti land, uh, the Asantehini, uh, the king, uh, essentially mandated that people use boiled water to uh, to, to 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 clean their latrine. This is evidence that even in colonial Africa, people understood the connection between public health and good health. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back even further to so-called medieval Africa, uh, in Timbuktu, the archive of Timbuktu contained extensive documents regarding medical practices in uh in 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 medieval Africa. Practices which were in some ways more advanced than medical practices in Europe, where until the nineteenth century it was common for people to be bled to death. Uh, because people thought that what caused disease was bad blood. And so therefore they would drain your plasma and and and, and people would die that way. As far as we know, that practice was not uh widely uh adopted in, in Africa. <laughs> uh, so coming back now to your question, yes, I uh uh talk about eighteen seventy or the eighteen seventies rather than eighteen eighty five as the beginning of uh, sort of more systematized healthcare system in colonial Africa uh because uh it was really with the uh exploration uh efforts that a European presence uh, deep into the interior of Africa was contemplated. And so uh, during this period, uh, uh, I mean, before this period, the European presence in Africa, in West Africa particularly, was limited to the coast, and it was limited to trade. But with the exploration period, uh, that set the stage for a more sustained presence that is to say, for colonialism. So during this period, men like David Livingston, Emin uh, Pasha, uh, Savoglian de Braza, uh, John Rawlins, uh, who was also known as Henry Morton Stanley, you know, went into uh, a deeper uh, uh, effort. Uh, to uh, understand Africa and to set the the, ge- the geography and the topography of Africa and to set the stage for, for colonialism. So as they went into these explorations, they encountered diseases uh, which they had to cure for themselves. Uh, so they fell sick, and so they had to treat themselves. In addition, in these explorations, uh, medical specialists were often part of the equipage because even in this period, what you find is that medical specialists were used in order to develop amity with local Africans. So these explorations would treat not only the explorers, but the Africans that uh, the explorers met along the way. Now, I should also mention that relationships between local Africans and explorers were not always cordial. Cordial. So sometimes there were fights between them. And that, well, of course, whenever people fight, there are injuries which need to be treated. <laughs> and so, uh, these explorations also had a medical component stemming from conflicts yes. in addition to epi- epidemiological problems. Mm-hmm. And of course, Uh, some of these explorers uh, were uh, missionaries as well. And later during colonialism proper, missionaries came to play a very important role in colonial medicine. In some ways, in fact, uh, missionary medicine uh, was much more important, much more extensive than uh, colonial state-provided medicine. In other words, the medical missionaries were the real pioneer, and the advent of uh, of systematic uh, so called modern uh, you know healthcare systems in Africa.
1: Well, and along with that, um, one of the things you, you talk about in the in this chapter, uh, with the example of the British Medical Act, right, is that uh, that at a certain point in the in the colonial period, Western trained African doctors uh, were denied. Um, the right to practice medicine in their own countries. So I would think that that would also um, uh, sort of consolidate that um, that hold that the, the missionary medicine or medical mit- missionaries sort of had on on treatment and, and policy.
0: Right, right. Uh, you know, one of the things that happened in, in the 1920s uh, is that uh, you begin to have, uh, a core of, uh, medical providers who were African. Uh, in, 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 in countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, uh, you had at first so-called African, you know, bush doctors. They were not fully uh, you know, medical doctors in the Western sense, but they did have medical knowledge. And of course, in the 1930s and 1940s, you did have people who did become, uh, you know, uh, full medical doctors, uh, such as Kamuzubanda and in Malawi, uh, and, 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 and even Oh, Philippe Toufet boigny who was not fully a medical doctor who had, but who advanced medical training. Uh, generally speaking, uh, these providers were excluded, uh, from practicing medicine or there were severe constraints, uh, placed upon them because among other things, uh, colonial officials did not want for African medical providers to to treat uh, European women, for, for example. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, also, by limiting uh, competition from uh, uh, African medical providers, European medical providers in Africa could keep their status and their wages or salaries. Right. Uh, So there were various reasons, some economic, some social, and some, quite frankly, racist, that that, that limited the... Also, the colonial state, quite frankly, uh, did not make it a priority to train African doctors and and other medical providers. Uh, So uh, for a variety of reasons uh you know the supply of medical providers during colonialism was limited, but yes, after a decade or so of colonialism on the continent, you did begin to have uh you know uh trained African medical providers, some doctors, some nurses, uh, some what we may what we may now call nurse practitioners, uh developing in, in, in the nineteen twenties. And certainly by the end of colonialism, uh, there was in some countries a fairly decent supply of medical providers, such as in Senegal, for example.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so so the one of the things that this chapter introduces that continues throughout the book is is this. Um, uh, I don't know what the the best term, whether it's a, a a clash or a confrontation between uh, a sort of Western approach to um, to medicine to illness, um, uh, which is a, a biomedical um, approach, um, that in opposition to a um, an indigenous African approach. And I wonder if you would um, explain for us what what this uh, biomedical approach sort of consists of. Okay. Good question, once again.
0: Uh, During colonialism, uh, there was a clash, uh, among many clashes, (laughs) between Africans and Europeans uh, in terms of how you view disease and how you treat disease. Uh, And uh, the African medical uh, epistemology and worldview Disease was a combination of uh, physical ailments and spiritual ailments. In other words, it was a combination of of physics and metaphysics. Uh, Thus, uh, the treatment of disease required not only uh, intervention on the body, but also intervention on the spirit. So African medical intervention... But in the Lower Congo, for example, included drumming, singing, uh, praying, uh, in addition to using, you know, uh, you know, herbal medicine. Uh, this was in contrast with uh, the Western view of medicine and the Western view of uh, disease, which basically saw disease as uh, uh, stemming from uh, biological breakdown of the body, uh, which could be repaired by chemicals. And so uh, in in, in Western medical epistemology, if someone is sick, you do one of two things, both of which uh, have to do with intervening on the body. So we can talk, and I talk in the chapter of Mm biopower, Biomedical power and the, in Western uh, medical practice, uh, you if somebody is sick, you give them medicine, you give them drugs, so that uh, uh, you can reestablish the equilibrium in the body through chemistry. Mm-hmm. The second thing that you do is you 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 you, you provide surgery. Okay? In other words, you repair the body part. So this is the view of the body as machine and of the medical provider as a mechanic. <laughs> In Africa, the medical provider was both a mechanic and a priest. However, uh, since uh, African missionaries looked down on spiritual, on African, since European missionaries, excuse me, looked down on spiritual, on African spirituality, they tended to view the more metaphysical part of African medicine as superstition, and therefore as something that they should crack down on. Mm -hmm. Ironically, uh, we are now seeing that the African view of disease was the correct one, (laughs) that increasingly uh, in Western medicine we recognize that you not only intervene on the body, But also the predisposition of the mind uh, has an important bearing on uh, how well the body is repaired. So Africans had the correct view uh, all along—that is to say, a holistic approach to curing disease, involving you know physical intervention and spiritual intervention. So I thought that that was a very interesting.
1: So sometimes the oppressor can learn from the oppressed. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so in, in, uh, continuing in that, in that vein, right? If we, if we could, uh, discuss the, the third and fourth chapters of the book, um, they are, uh, both titled healthcare policy in post Africa. Chapter three, uh, is subtitled the influence of external institutions. Um, I do if we hear you, you, discuss the internationalization of healthcare policy and presumably uh, some of what you've just discussed uh, which is this uh, uh turn in western medicine to recognize um the, the not just the value but the the necessity of a holistic um approach to illness and um and medicine um you you cite a number of of examples um in the in the chapter of of this internationalization of healthcare policy. In particular, you privileged the example of uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the MCC. Um, and I, I wonder if you would uh, tell us what makes the MCC especially worthy of, of critical analysis.
0: Okay. Uh, so, uh, so chapter two argues that African healthcare policy was internationalized during the colonial period. And that set the stage for the further internationalization of healthcare policy in Africa in the post-colonial period, so that you cannot understand healthcare policy in post-colonial Africa without understanding the colonial period. Uh, the internationalization of uh, healthcare policy in post-colonial Africa is due to a variety of factors, not just colonialism, but the fact that African countries continue to be highly dependent on uh, international institutions, particularly aid institutions, foreign aid institutions. Uh, so one of these institutions, in fact, the latest, is uh, the Millennium uh, Challenge Corporation, which was... Uh, uh previously called the Millennium Challenge account. It was uh, first announced by uh, former President George W. Bush in uh, 2002. And it represents, as I say in the book, the latest example of the internationalization of healthcare policy in post-colonial Africa. So uh, what is the Millennium Uh, Challenge Corporation basically it was an organization uh, created to provide grants not loans to countries in exchange for these countries undertaking uh, economic political and social policy reforms in order to accelerate economic growth and, uh, reduce poverty. In other words, the MCC, uh, was and is a continuation of the policy-based lending of the 1980s, except that the MCC is a creation of the U.S. government, whereas the policy-based lending of the 1980s, which was, uh, which was embedded in structural adjustment were pushed generally by the World Bank and the IMF. So under MCC rule, uh, uh, countries uh, apply for grants to the MCC and uh, the MCC develop a number of uh, NDCs or matrices and decide whether uh, countries, the the project proposed by these countries meet uh, the criteria, the performance criteria. As spelled out by the MCC, so uh, performance indicators include economic freedom, uh, ruling justly, and investing in people. So you can imagine if a country wants, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, help and healthcare, it puts together a grant proposal that demonstrates. That it is going to invest and 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 uh, and improve health conditions of its citizens, and so that would fall under investing in people, and technically that would qualify such countries for MCC aid. The problem with the MCC is that these performance indicators, uh, you know, are generally decided by MCC, so they are kind of a, a report card. That are given to countries and, uh, they are, they are also grades that are given to countries. So both the report cards and the grades are provided by the MCC, uh, as well as the performance indicators. So the MCC is both, uh, you know, uh, judge and executioner, so to speak, both player and, and referee. Uh, and so African countries, uh, pretend to be partners or should I say recipient countries, pretend to be partners with the MCC, when in fact they are at best junior partners. Mm -hmm. It is the MCC that decides uh, that that makes the key decision. So to give you an example outside of Africa, uh, you know, there is probably no country in the developing world that has invested more in uh, human development than Cuba, particularly where health is concerned. You know, Cuba has more, you know, doctors per capita than any country in the world, including the United States. But it is a safe bet that, uh, Cuba, at least for the foreseeable future, is not likely to be qualified for MCC grants under investing in people. (laughs) So, uh, uh, for other reasons. Uh, and so the MCC, uh, while it is theoretically, uh, an innovation and, uh, and, 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 aid policy to the extent that it stresses accountability, but it also further perpetuates dependence, uh, the dependence of recipient countries on, uh, on, on, on U.S., on, on U.S. aid. And it, it, it also demonstrates that Uh, or at least it has the potential of underscoring the fact, underscoring the fact that, uh, priorities that are not regarded as priorities of the MCC will not be funded, uh, thus, uh, driving home the point that the MCC is a way of, or maybe a way of remaking, of remaking recipient countries in the image of the US government rather than their own image.
1: Well, and, and that's. Um... And so, if, if, I may, if I may
0: continue, so, so the key point here is that uh, American aid is given to countries, uh, or the willingness of American aid to be given to countries hinges on these countries pursuing market friendly. Economic policies and, and democracy and other social policies that meet with American approval rather than the approval of the citizens of those countries themselves.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's a, a great opportunity for us to t- to talk again about the um, about uh, the fourth chapter, which talks of, uh, is subtitled measuring the impact of local institutions uh because i think one of the um uh one of the persistent perceptions and narratives um is is uh is of this imbalance uh in terms of what um african countries uh, uh, or states are willing to uh willing or able to do in terms of setting policy for for their citizens citizens and as you as you um discussed just now, uh, establishing policies that are reflective of the, the will of the of the citizens of the countries rather than uh of external um agents, whether donors or um uh, other other actors. So I I think in this chapter, just just again for the benefit of, of our listeners, um, you take up this idea of how um, local institutions, not of external origin, um, in this case, um, of a macrosocial character, in, um, empirically influence healthcare policy. And I wonder if you could talk about that. I I, um, I was particularly interested in this chapter, um, your discussion of of spending, right, of government spending on um, on healthcare. And, uh, and I, and I uh, would love it if you would uh, share some more about that.
0: Yes, uh, this is uh, the empirical part of the study. Uh, in that it is in this chapter in which I try to measure, uh, you know, health policy outcomes. And, and, and try to account for, uh, and try to provide an explanation of uh, of uh healthcare policy outcomes. uh this is a very standard approach in uh in healthcare policy studies uh it was uh, pioneered essentially by uh Joseph Newhouse of uh the Rand Corporation in the early 1970s who asked a very basic question and that is what is the connection between, uh, national health and healthcare spending on one hand, on the one hand? And what is the connection between healthcare spending and healthcare outcomes? Uh, Joseph Newhouse asked these questions for developed countries in the, in the early 1970s. What I try to do is to ask these same questions as they apply to African countries. Uh, because again, we know a lot more about healthcare in developed countries than we do in developing countries, mm-hmm. certainly than, than we do about uh regarding African countries. So in this chapter, one of the questions that I ask is what is the connection between national health and healthcare spending in Africa? uh this is not just an academic question in 2001 uh african countries met in abuja nigeria yeah. uh, and pledged uh to devote at least 15% of their annual budget on their healthcare sec- on their healthcare uh systems 15% uh so the question that I try to answer and in, in, in this in this chapter is uh you know did uh African countries meet that objective by 2013 when I was writing the book? And and, and that question, you know, uh Dovetails nicely with the bigger question regarding the connection between uh, wealth and healthcare spending, healthcare spending and and healthcare outcomes. And so, uh, what I found, uh, among other things, in this chapter, so I have data uh, for forty-six African countries. Let me make that very clear. So uh, the great majority of African countries is included uh, uh, in this study. That is to say, 84% of African states are part of this of this study. Uh, uh, So uh, did African countries uh meet the goal of the goal of the Abuja Declaration, which was to devote 15% 15% of their annual budget on their healthcare sector. Uh, what I found was, uh, no, uh, that generally speaking, uh, African countries, uh, between 2001, when the policy was enunciated, in 2012 and 2013, so that's like a 10 to 11 year period, uh, 12 year period, uh, uh, African countries did not meet the goal of the Abuja Declaration, which was to devote 15% of their budget to health. However, what I found, uh, which was very interesting, was that to the extent that African countries were approaching meeting the Abuja Declaration, uh, or even meeting it, it was not the richer countries, it was the poorer countries. Okay. So that's sort of counterintuitive. Uh you would have expected, you know, the Nigerias, the South Africans, you know, the uh wealthier African countries to have easily met the goal of the Abuja Declaration, which was once again to devote fifteen percent of their budget, uh of their annual budget to health care. Okay. And instead what I found uh were countries like you know uh uh uh, Rwanda. Uh, uh, somewhat surprisingly, Liberia. Uh, I said somewhat surprisingly because Liberia, you know, went through a very brutal civil war in the 1990s. Okay, so uh, so what I found was that it was rather than the poorest African countries that tended to devote a greater share of their annual budget to healthcare, and so that calls for an explanation. And uh, uh, the most plausible one uh, for me, uh, given the data, was that uh, the poorest African countries uh, uh, had qualified for debt relief during this period, uh, provided that uh, they use the foregone interest payments. To devote to their healthcare system. And I, and, and I, 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 I think that that is the main reason for, uh, for the improvement of the poorest African countries, uh, and spending a greater share of their, uh, of, of, of their budget on healthcare. So this demonstrates that debt relief can make a difference. Uh, it demonstrates that, uh, you know, uh, 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 it is possible to, uh, uh, for countries to increase their commitment to healthcare spending with some help from the international community. In uh, some of these poorest countries, you also have uh, a commitment, a, a greater commitment by government. So uh, Rwanda, for example, uh explicitly uh devote almost like uh, twenty to twenty-five percent of its budget on healthcare. So in addition to uh to uh to uh, international institutions, national government commitment also matters. In other words, local institutions also matter. Mm-hmm. Uh and then, uh, I, the second part of the question you may recall is, what is the impact of healthcare spending on healthcare outcomes? And so what I did here was I took some of the healthcare related Millennium Development Goals, specifically MDG 4, MDG 5, and MDG 6. Uh, so these were goals that were established by the United Nations in, in, in 2000. And so I asked which African countries were more likely or more unlikely to come closest to meeting these MDGs or to not meeting them. Okay. And again, what i found uh, was that there is not necessarily a correlation in Africa between uh, uh, national wealth uh, and uh, healthcare outcomes. But there is a connection between healthcare spending and healthcare outcomes. In other words, the countries that tend to spend more on healthcare spending, meaning the poorest African countries, experience drastic Improvement in the MDG four, five, and six. In fact, uh, what I found in some instances is that uh, uh, the richer African countries, such as uh, South Africa, did not uh, make substantial improvement in in, in MDG six, for example, MDG six, for example, such as reducing HIV/AIDS. Okay. Uh and so there is a connection between healthcare spending and healthcare outcome. Uh, thus spending does matter. Uh, poor countries that commit to healthcare spending can experience fairly significant uh, positive healthcare outcomes. Uh, and so it does matter uh, what countries spend on their healthcare system. So that's that that's the main idea uh, in this chapter is to empirically uh, examine the impact of uh, institutions local institutions on policy and on policy and, and, on, and on outcomes now uh, some of these institutions that are that I call local are somewhat arbitrary mm-hmm. thus, One of the institutions that I look at is ICT, information and communication technology. Of course, you know, the internet, for example, was not invented in Africa. But it is local in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, Africans use the internet and other forms of communication technology in their social and economic relations. Uh, So we examine ICT, we examine government, we examine economies, and we examine regime types, meaning democracy. Another interesting variable, uh the independent variable that we look to uh to examine healthcare policy and healthcare outcome is what I call stateness. In other words, the degree to which countries have uh, in a working state, I initially hypothesised would have some bearing On their healthcare policy and healthcare policy outcomes. And I didn't find that to be the case, by the way, which was uh, kind of disappointing, but it is what it is. (laughs) Uh, Because I had expected for so-called failed states to, to, for state failure to have an impact. I explained that in the chapter why I think uh, that, that is not the case, but uh, that was one of the intriguing results that we, that, that we had to deal with.
1: Well, in, uh, in the same way, um, that you, that you used stateness in that chapter, um, in the following chapter, which deals with healthcare policy and African humanitarianism, you actually use, um, the embeddedness of humanitarian organizations as a, as a means of classification, right, an organizing principle, uh, to uh, uh, determine, um, right. what humanitarian organizations are and what sorts of, uh, what sorts of impacts they have on mm-hmm. on policy? Uh, so, I mm-hmm. wonder if we we could turn to that because I think that, again, there's there's so many interesting uh, connections in the last uh, chapter mm-hmm. discussing uh, right. uh, debt relief. Uh, say is one form of help from the international community, and humanitarianism, right, is another uh, really obvious um, form of of help. Um, and so, uh, so if you could discuss that, that would be great.
0: Yes, well, actually, this is a very nice segue uh, into uh, into a very important topic. Uh, I didn't do this in the book, but I wish that I had. Now that I'm speaking to you, <laughs> and that is, it may very well be that the reason why stiffness does not have much of an impact on. Health policy outcome uh, that is that may well be due to the presence of humanitarian organisations, but I, I didn't examine that in, in the book. Nevertheless, humanitarian organisations, you know, play a very important role in African healthcare systems. I call them humanitarian, organiza- humanitarian organizations humanitarian organisations or institutions. Other people refer to them as NGOs. Non-governmental organizations. So, what I try to do. So, Africa probably has more of these organizations than any other continent, right? And so, uh, in Tanzania, for example, uh, in the early 2000s, the number of uh, of NGOs was estimated at, at ten thousand, right? So, uh, humanitarian organizations, they play an important role in social policy making in Africa, uh, perhaps more so in healthcare than any other area. Uh, In 2007, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation allocated 61% of its grants, which uh, was the equivalent of 1.2 billion dollars to global health programs, many of which were, were in Africa. Uh, however, uh, there are humanitarian organizations and there are humanitarian organizations. In other words, uh, not all humanitarian organizations will work the same way. Or are the same, or are or are of the same size. So uh, one important thing that I try to do in this chapter is to construct a typology or a taxonomy of humanitarian organizations, and uh, basically I uh, construct this typon this typology based on. Uh, what I call the degree of embeddedness of uh, various humanitarian organizations with the local institutions in Africa particularly the state so there are certain uh, humanitarian organizations that maintain very deep ties to the state so I call them the deeply embedded humanitarian organizations so these organizations, in fact, can be seen as the implementing agents mm-hmm. of the state. So state officials they make policy, and then they more or less rely on these humanitarian organizations to implement policy. Mm-hmm. All right? So that's the deeply embedded humanitarian organization. So it's part of it's it's, it's part of the system of governance. Mm-hmm. In other words. And then you have uh, other types of humanitarian organizations that are less uh, uh, embedded uh, with the state and other uh, local institutions. Uh, so one example of a deeply embedded humanitarian organization would be uh, Paul Farmer's Partners in Health which i talked about earlier in 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 Rwanda but partners in health also operate you know clinics in uh, Lesotho and in uh, and in Swaziland and outside of uh, Africa and in and uh, in, uh, in Haiti in all of these countries basically uh partners in health if i may be redundant partners with local government national governments and then and, and, and become essentially uh, part of the state provided or state supported healthcare system uh, but this is not the way all humanitarian organizations necessarily operate there are some humanitarian organizations that make it a policy to keep their distance vis-a-vis local institutions, particularly the state. So I call them conditionally embedded humanitarian organization. Conditionally embedded humanitarian organization. They try to maintain a certain distance from the state so that they can operate with independence. There is some advantage to doing that, And that if you become too closely affiliated with a government, particularly with a non-democratic government, uh, should that government lose power as a humanitarian organization, you may find yourself, uh, you know, being thrown out of the country. (laughs) Okay. But at the same time, by partnering with a, with an existing government, you may have access to resources and you may have Freedom of mobility that you may not otherwise have had if you had maintained your distance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how much uh, humanitarian organisations are embedded or not embedded in the societies in which they operate offer uh, advantages and disadvantages. And so, uh, as a humanitarian organisation, you have to decide, you know, uh, uh, which uh, 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 which strategy is best. Uh, uh, for you. Uh, in the book, I talk about a very interesting, uh, type of, uh, humanitarian organization. That is what I call the globally embedded, the globally, uh, embedded and multifaceted humanitarian organization, GEMO. Uh, uh, an example of that would be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, the Carter Center would be an example, would be another example of a globally embedded and multifaceted humanitarian organization. So these are, I, what I call them the humanitarian equivalent of multinational corporations. Uh, in fact, uh, as you, as you well know, uh, uh, you know the bill and melinda gates foundation was founded by the former head of one of the largest multinational corporations right. microsoft okay so uh this is uh, something that has happened uh in the in the late 20th cent- that happened in the late 20th century and uh early 21st century where multimillionaires and and and, and billionaires are establishing foundations that are transnational in scope and that are also multifaceted. So if you look at the early humanitarian organizations in the West, such as, you know, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, they did do some work overseas, but generally speaking, they were national in scope and interest. Uh, Now what you have is, again, uh, uh, the internationalization of humanitarian, uh, uh of, of, humanitarian work. And so the Bill, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation dwarfs not only the budget of, uh, uh you know, healthcare ministries in Africa, but the budget even of the World Health Organization. <laughs> so in this sense, uh, humanitarianism is getting even bigger than than states and multilateral agencies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, but another thing that's occurring uh, in, 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 in healthcare in Africa is that you are beginning to have, as more and more Africans become billionaires, you are also beginning to have Africa-centered and Africa-born humanitarian organizations that are also transnational.
1: Like the Dangote Foundation. So, you have
0: the Dangote Foundation in Nigeria. It's based in Nigeria, but it played an important role, for example, during the Ebola crisis in Liberia. You have the Shandaria Foundation in Kenya, which is led by the Shandaria you know, conglomerate. Uh, so, uh, uh, this is a very interesting development in that historically in Africa you know Africans, wealthier Africans were engaged in humanitarian work but they tended to be informal okay Uh, it is as I mentioned in the chapter it is a rare African of some means that do not take care of at least the extended family if not you know, the village. <laughs> so there has always been humanitarian work in Africa by the well to do, but now it's becoming more systematized <laughs> and more organized. Uh and but I hesitate to say more Western. Right, right, But uh you know, you you get my point. And, and and furthermore, these humanitarian organizations like the Dangote Foundation, they are not only operating outside of the African country of origin. They are even operating outside of the continent. <laughs> so during the earthquake in Pakistan, for example, uh, in, uh, in, in, in the early in the, in the first decade of the 2000 the Dengote Foundation donated money to Pakistan. Okay, that's an important development, at least for me, in that you know, uh, you know, Africa and the popular. Imagination is always thought of as a sort of as a recipient place and Africans are staking. <laughs> well, Africans are also giving, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in the, in, in the humanitarian field. And, 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 and that's an interesting, it's an interesting development. So as more and more, uh, Africans succeed economically, we can expect, uh, uh the humanitarian sector in africa uh to become more africa centered and that may have consequences for the type of projects health projects that they pursue <laughs> that they may pursue projects that are more uh you know sensitive to african needs mm-hmm. rather than sensitive to what the west thinks africa needs you
1: see? yeah and and again that's sort of um uh, autonomy and um freedom to determine uh freedom to determine their own their own course um is something interesting that that uh, that came up as well in this in this chapter uh which uh which is the the cultural differences with regard to charity and and this again um we, we don't need to go into it but but these cultural differences in terms of how africans view uh charity and humanitarianism again are, are Presents something of a um, of a divergence along the the same lines as you discussed mm-hmm. in, in earlier chapters. You know the the mm-hmm. um, different approaches to illness and and healing and and um, medicine. So medicine. Um, yeah, so that it's a really um, I'm really did at the at the risk of, of betraying a favorite uh, chapter, um, uh, the, the the chapter on humanitarianism might might well have been um, uh, one I enjoyed um, uh, most. So, well, um, so uh, but that's not to that's not to uh, <laughs> that's not to slight any of the other chapters, including uh, the sixth chapter, uh, where you look um, in particular at, at uh, healthcare policy in Botswana. Ghana and Rwanda. Um, the the chapter subtitle is agency and institutions, and and in, you conclude in this chapter that agency and institutions determine healthcare policy um, in in these three countries where uh, one might expect agency, um, which you which you define, I should say, um, much earlier in the book, uh, to be the sole sure. determinant of, of policy. And so, I wonder, uh, starting from this conclusion, if you could, if you would tell us why. Um, um, you know, so what what's the basis there, right? Why we might expect agency to be the sole determinant policy. Um um, you know, maybe what you mean by agency, elite agency specifically. Um and uh yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Okay.
0: Well uh, first of all, you know, uh why Botswana, Ghana and Rwanda out of fifty five African countries. Right. Uh, I chose these three countries, uh, uh, because I thought that they represent, in spite of the, uh, smallness, if I may use this term, of the sample size, I thought that these three countries represent sort of the gamut of, 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 of African countries. Uh, Botswana is a middle-income African country so it could be seen to represent other middle-income African countries of which there are admittedly few I think about 14 uh, Ghana is a low-middle-income country so it could be seen to represent low-middle-income African countries and Rwanda is a low-income country African countries, so it could be seen to represent uh, African countries in that category. Uh, So that's the reason for choosing these three countries. Furthermore, all three countries have made universal access a centerpiece of their healthcare policy. In other words, they have a policy in common whose results, I thought, could be measured uh, and uh And, and compared so uh, we can say that the choice of these three countries uh, was uh, a kind of stratified sample if i if I may be uh somewhat uh, somewhat technical uh, also collectively Botswana, Ghana, and Rwanda are representative. Of the political regimes of contemporary Africa, Botswana is uh, is a democratic country. Ghana is well on its way to being democratic, and Rwanda is somewhat more problematic. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, you know, I thought that it it, it represented it, it represented a, a good number of 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 the political regime that exists uh, in Africa. So there are good reasons for focusing on on these two countries, on these three countries. Right. And so what I do in the chapter is to look at their history, uh, look at the type of government that they have, the type of economy, uh, the type of healthcare policy that they've pursued. So if you consider... Healthcare policy as the sort of dependent variable in these countries. The question is what, what, what has driven that policy? And so the approach here is that of uh, historical policy analysis. I look at uh, basically the post-colonial history of each of these countries and then ask in that history what factors appear to be most crucial in determining healthcare policy and what uh, uh, became recurring uh, in all three cases is agency and by agency I mean elite commitment to healthcare Uh, Botswana at independence was extremely poor Uh, it had a per capita GDP of $65 per year Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and of course uh, Botswana became a major uh, you know in fact the biggest producer of cut diamonds in, in the world Okay, uh, but other African countries also have diamonds, <laughs> okay, but have not done as well as Botswana. So, what that suggests is that, you know, natural resource endowment per se, uh, you know, uh, does not guarantee success. It is the use to which such endowment is put that makes a difference. And here we're talking about elite. We're talking about management of, of, of resources. Uh, same thing in Ghana. At independence, uh you know, the Nkuma government was very much committed to an inclusive healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ghana went through a very tough time in the 1970s and especially in 1980s, if you recall in 1984, 85, when thousands of Ghanaians were thrown out of Nigeria. Uh, uh, so Ghana uh, became a kind of, uh, poster child in the 1980s for African stagnation. uh. In the 1990s, under the former PNDC, now NDC government led by Jerry Rawlings, uh, the economy started to pick up again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then by 2000, or the early uh, part of the 21st century, uh, the economic growth in Ghana became more, uh, uh, more sustainable. Never really of, uh you know, Chinese-like scope, like 10 to 12% growth per annum, but decent, 4 to 5%. Uh, so as the economy of Ghana has picked up, Ghana has sort of returned to its earlier commitment to healthcare. Again, underscoring the importance of agency. So it seems that uh, the idea of and I, 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 I criticize this term in the book, but we can use it here in a limited way, there is the, the notion and policy studies of a policy window,
1: mm-hmm.
0: in which uh, sometimes a policy is not necessarily abandoned, but is put aside because of adverse circumstances, and then when those circumstances change, then the policy is revived. Mm-hmm. But that cannot happen unless you have a leap. <laughs> who or unless you have uh elite agencies who, who can revive such policies. Okay. So uh agency uh matters, but of course it's not just agency, it's also institution. Sure. Okay, no matter how much, for example, the Ghanaian uh elite wanted to revive uh healthcare, a la Kwame and Kuma if the economy was not in demand, they would not have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, So you have to look at uh, agency and institutions jointly, but I tilt uh, toward uh, agency a little bit more because I believe that, you know, uh, human action matters. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, But perhaps nowhere is agency, is the importance of agency, uh, uh, Underscored than in Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda. This is a country that experienced genocide. Uh, you know, in nineteen ninety four, uh, it lost anywhere between eight hundred thousand and a million people in the span of three years. Uh, and I remember writing an article, my my very first article. Uh, uh as a young faculty member was on failed states and at that time I classified Rwanda as a failed state that was back in 1995 well I can tell you that Rwanda is not in that category at least for the past 10 years <laughs> uh, and it is uh, one of the biggest spenders on healthcare in Africa Uh why because of the commitment of the RPF led by Paul Kagame to improving health care and other social conditions, uh, which the these regimes see as a way of legitimizing itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. The regime does not necessarily use democratic or political legitimacy. It uses social legitimacy. So it sees healthcare spending, healthcare education, housing, and other things as 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 the basis for uh, for its legitimacy. Uh, thus, it spends again anywhere between uh, a quarter to uh, uh, a fifth, anywhere between a fifth and a quarter of its uh, annual budget on 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 health. That that's pretty impressive, and that would not have happened by itself the elite made the calculation that improving the standards of living of people mattered for our right to govern. Okay, But again, uh, uh, that commitment would not have been honored if the Rwandese government or as they said, the Rwandan government did not perform better economically. So again, it's not agency versus institution, it's agency and institution with uh, a kind of uh, tilt toward agency. Mm -hmm. But uh, other social scientists may disagree. They may give more weight to institution. But in the final analysis, I tilt more toward agency because I believe that development and underdevelopment is ultimately caused by people. (laughs) Economies do not just happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, economies essentially are systems in which real people participate, and so therefore it matters what kind of agent that you have that participate in an economy, and what kind of state that you have that uh, sets up the rule of the economic game. So again, uh, uh, agency matters. Well, and that's the
1: that's a, a perfect uh segue into the uh the final chapter of the book which is uh healthcare policy in Africa in the twentieth twenty first century, challenges and opportunities. Right? So the uh and here the, the challenges is represented by the Ebola pandemic of twenty fourteen and the opportunities are represented by uh the very long history of Cuban involvement in, in the healthcare of Africa. Um and but picking up uh where you just left off, right, this idea of uh the role of political will, right, or agency by African leaders, so on, um, is is a question that you that you uh, sort of pose rhetorically in in this final chapter, right? Um, uh, in comparison to Cuba, right, which can be, which has been so generous with its healthcare, human power, and uh, the the question that's posed is why not uh, the same thing with uh, with West African countries, right? Yes, uh, Cuba is a is a is a fascinating example
0: of uh, what is possible, even in poor countries, uh, when you have the right leadership. Uh, in many ways, in uh, 1959, uh, at the beginning of the Cuban Revolution, uh, uh, Cuba was where uh, many African countries are now and have been in the post-colonial period. In fact, uh, in 1963, Cuba lost half of its medical doctors when they defected to the West. Imagine losing half, 50% of your medical doctors uh, when you are under an embargo or when you are about to be put uh, under an embargo. But today, some, uh, you know, 51 years later, Cuba has more per capita doctor, put more doctor per capita than any other country in the world Including the United States, so how how did Cuba do it? Well, uh, in this chapter, I show that uh, Cuba plan- and also and I should also mention, as a re- partly as a result of Cuba having more medical doctors per capita than any other country in the world, Cuban health indices, infant mortality, uh, adult life expectancy, and you name it. Cuban health indices compare more than favorably with health indices in developed countries. Okay. So what Cuba shows is that it matters uh, that, that that poor countries can invest in in their medical personnel and in their medical healthcare system in general, and when they do that, they can get quite positive healthcare outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you don't have to be rich to have a decent healthcare system, and you don't have to be rich to have people have healthy lives. <laughs> so, those are, in my view, some of the most important lessons that Africa has, uh, that, that that Cuba offers to Africa and to the rest of the world. So, how has Cuba done it? In this chapter, I demonstrate that uh, Cuba has planned its medical success. In other words, success does not just happen. You have to plan it and go about implementing the plan. Uh, Cuban success in healthcare uh, can be attributed to efficient allocation of scarce resources to areas that offer the highest return on investment. And that would be public health and all of its components. And here I'm quoting Fidel Castro here, and I quote, In the field of public health, we have been guided from the outset by a number of basic criteria. The first is to prioritize public health as one of the vital services for human society. Moreover, it is what the people value more than anything. I cannot understand how politicians do not understand that. End of quote. So I was not speaking. This was Fidel. <laughs> okay. That you have to prioritize public health as one of the vital services for human society. So Cuba did not immediately embrace biomedicine, in other words, Western medicine after the revolution. It invested in public health first. And then it shifted to biomedicine in the mid-1970s without sacrificing public health. Okay? In fact, the two go together. A good public health system Makes biomedical intervention more effective, right? So, for example, if, if a public health system means you have a, uh, you know, you vaccinate everybody, mm-hmm. right? So it means having a population that is immunized. Well, you know that immunization does not necessarily prevent that you won't get sick a hundred percent, but if you are immunized and you should get sick you are an easier patient to treat than if you were not immunized, right? So uh, biomedical uh, intervention and public health are complementary. But there is a kind of sequencing to that. You have to invest in public health first, which is also cheaper, so you can get more bang for the buck. Once you get people healthy, you get them vaccinated you get them to to drink clean drinking water uh and 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 so on then you can shift to treating the more you know chronic diseases such as you know heart disease diabetes high blood pressure etc okay and so that's what cuba did cuba invested in public health before it could invest in biomedicine the problem in africa is this that uh, because in part of the legacy of the colonial period, uh, African governments have tended to prioritize biomedicine over public health. Furthermore, the institutions of biomedicine have tended to have an urban bias. Mm-hmm. So virtually all of the largest hospitals in Africa tend to be located in cities, for example. Okay. And so to get care, so called advanced care, people have to come to the city. Okay. But if you have a good public health system uh, that relies on an an extensive network of dispensaries and primary health care clinics, you don't need to build large hospitals in cities. Because uh, hospitals are the most costly them in any country's healthcare budget. Okay? So uh, you get more bang for the buck once again by investing in public health. So that's the lesson of Cuba, the first lesson of Cuba for for Africa, that Africans need to rediscover, uh, uh, you know, investing in public health because a good public health system which emphasizes uh, prevention uh then can set the stage for uh and, and facilitate uh you know bio biomedicine uh Cuba as i suggested also has invested in healthcare personnel very heavily such as doctors and nurses rather than high tech medicine such as machines okay as i mentioned before uh uh in 1959, the year of the revolution, Cuba had an estimated 6,000 doctors, many of whom were practicing in the greater Havana area. By 1963, Cuba had lost half that number. Okay. But by 1985, Cuba had trained seven, by 2005, rather, Cuba had trained 70,594 doctors, 159,000 nurses, and 6,640 dentists. This is on pages 256 and 257 of my book. Uh, So Cuba does not waste time training doctors. In the West, it can take as many as ten years to train one doctor who is then deeply in debt. <laughs> because as you know, medical school in this country, you know, is basically supported by medical students. In Cuba, medical school is free, and by that I mean medical school is financed entirely by the state. Furthermore, the medical school curriculum is designed by a panel of experts who determine the health problems faced by humanity in general and the Cuban population in particular. And then that same panel identifies the specific skills that doctors will need to handle these problems, as well as the basic theoretical knowledge undergirding these skills. One of the problems in the US, as you may know, is that uh, people are trained not in the areas that are uh, uh, where there is the most need, but often in the areas that command the biggest salary because of the debt incurred by medical students. So the US healthcare system and Western healthcare systems in general emphasize. Specialization over general practice. But to have a healthy population, you, what you need is general practitioners. Okay, that's the lesson provided by Cuba. Training general practitioners who are also trained in public health. And so when you go to Africa, you find that in many countries, the people providing general practitioners, uh, general uh, who are general practitioners and who are providing public health, particularly in the rural areas, tend to be Cuban volunteers. Okay, So I advocate in Chapter 7 an arrangement whereby Cuba does with African countries what it already does in Venezuela, for example, where in exchange for oil, say in Nigeria, Cuban doctors would be sent to augment the number of Nigerian doctors and nurses. You might do the same also in Angola and countries that do not have oil but that have some other minerals. It's possible in other words for Cuba and African countries to engage in ways that are mutually beneficial because Cuba is also a poor country but it has done tremendously well in the medical field mm-hmm. in, in the medical field in fact uh, Cuba's number one export is, uh, you know, medical skills. <laughs> so there is no reason why it cannot sell such skills and share such skills. Well, it already shares them, but shares even more with, uh, with, with African countries. But, uh, even if that were to be the case, you would still be left with the problem of brain drain right so even if you increase the supply of doctors the supply of nurses dentists in africa how do you prevent these people from leaving uh, so you have to look at the environment in which healthcare is provided uh in africa and see what help can be done to encourage people to stay so uh, uh so people uh who work for the government uh uh, in the medical field, maybe given a bonus, for instance, to practice in the rural areas. There is a tremendous uh, uh, gap in the doctor patient ratio in Africa. African doctors tend to be concentrated in cities, leaving the countryside without medical providers. So giving people bonuses, offering them subsidies for their houses and, 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 and patrol for their cars, you have to figure out a way of keeping people in okay, without using force. Uh, 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 Africa also has to develop capacity in, uh, in, 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 in its healthcare uh, systems by cooperating across borders. Do you realize that in the entire West Africa sub-region, which easily has 500 million people, including probably nearly 200 million in Nigeria. You don't have one public hospital in the West Africa sub-region that you could compare with a major public hospital in the United States, such as a Cook County hospital in Chicago, a Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, or a Kings County hospital in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. If countries would pull together uh, and, and, and build such a facility, uh, and then allow uh, their citizens to uh, to uh, to cross borders to receive care in West Africa, rather than traveling all the way to the West to receive care, this could uh, go a long way toward improving access to 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 biomedicine in Africa. But again. Biomedicine is not the solution by itself. Right. You need a combination of biomedicine as provided in hospitals and other facilities, but also public health. You also need to have behavioral change.
1: Right.
0: One of the things that I've noticed in urban Africa is a rise in obesity, uh, probably caused by the proliferation of fast food restaurants. So there will have to be uh, public health campaigns emphasizing behavior modification. Okay, people eating better, people uh, living a less of a sedentary life, people walking instead of driving. As Africa's middle class increases, of course, what happens is that uh, you know people uh, acquire automobiles, and instead of walking, they drive even over a short distance this is increasing obesity and it is and with that you have an increase in you know uh, so called rich man's disease such as diabetes heart disease heart blood pressure high blood uh, high blood pressure the consumption of uh, processed food may well be responsible for an increase in cancer uh in in, in parts of africa so people have to eat more organic food uh, and so in the final analysis, uh, you know, healthcare policy has to be holistic, you see. It doesn't have to necessarily to be limited to, you know, to, to building health facilities. Uh, it also has to do with uh, educating people to take better care of themselves uh, rather than having the state or some other entities, uh, you know, intervening uh on their bodies. And of course, we should also mention, you know, how well you feel physically is not unrelated to how well you feel mentally and spiritually. And so people have to learn to have fun and to, and to enjoy life, uh, uh rather than stressing themselves out. So uh, this is also part, this should also be part of, uh, of uh, so there ought to be what we may call an economy of leisure uh uh, uh that, that that accompanies you know uh, uh 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 healthcare policy whereby people's mental predisposition is much more positive uh because you know uh how well you feel physically as i just suggested depends on how badly or how well you feel mentally so this is all these are all of the issues that we look at in the book with uh, you know varying degrees of emphasis.
1: Right. Uh, and that's a that's a, a I think a perfect note uh, on which to end a uh, positive note of of taking in uh, factors including leisure, uh having fun, uh, lowering stress uh on uh, uh on a holistic approach to uh um, Health and healthcare policy, uh, uh, Doctor Cole. I can't thank you enough for, uh, for spending time uh, discussing a book I enjoyed very much um, with me today. And I hope you'll uh, come back when you have a future project.
0: I will. Thank you for having me,
1: folks. You've been uh, listening to uh, Professor Jean-Jacques Manco discuss his new book, Healthcare Policy in Africa: Institutions and Politics from Colonialism to the Present, published by Robin and Littlefield.